loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today I'm talking with Elizabeth Rossner. Elizabeth is the author of three novels and a poetry collection. The Speed of Light was translated into nine languages and won several awards in the U.S. and in Europe, including being shortlisted for the prestigious Pre-Femina. Blue Nude was named among the best books of 2006 by the San Francisco Chronicle. Electric City was named among the best books of 2014 by NPR. Her essays and reviews have appeared in the New York Times Magazine, Elle, the San Francisco Chronicle, and others. She lives in Berkeley, California, and today we'll be talking about her new book, Survivor Cafe, The Legacy of Trauma and the Labyrinth of Memory. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you, Cheryl. I'm looking at your book cover, uh, which is very beautiful, with the um, image of the ginkgo. I have a ginkgo tree in my front yard, so I was re- as I was reading, uh, I was thinking about my tree and the changes it's gone through and the time mm-hmm. I've lived here, and um, really uh, that that image connected very much for me, and also this. Um, fairly new realization about the um, the impact on our very DNA of trauma, mm-hmm. um, yeah. which is so deep in your book. But I wonder if you could start just by saying, uh, telling the listeners something about the genesis of the book and, um, you know, how it came about and how you, uh, how you wove your story with, with that story of, of, that larger story of all kinds of different traumas that people endure. Thank you. It's always such a challenge to try and reduce a book to, um, to a few sentences, but the way I describe it most briefly is that it's an interweaving of the personal narrative of inheriting my parents' stories. Both of my parents were Holocaust survivors, and in particular, um, the book contains descriptions of three different trips I took with my father to visit the concentration camp of Buchenwald, where he was a prisoner as a teenager. And then I interweave those stories with extensive interviews and research into other cultures, other genocides, other atrocities, mostly in the 20th century, but some some even earlier than that. And looking at a lot of the current science about trauma study, memory study, and the way that we are beginning to understand that trauma literally changes the expression of DNA and that subsequent generations are showing evidence of PTSD in ways that that don't reflect their own experience of trauma but have to do with trauma they inherited ancestrally. And the book really began because of the most recent trip I took to Germany with my father in 2015, where I saw that the survivors of many of these huge monumental tragedies and 
kind of inexpressible, epic stories of violence, those people are dying. Their, mm. um, their stories are, even though they're preserved in photos and films and books of all kinds, there's a way in which losing their physical presence, losing them in this world, means that those of us who come after have the responsibility for keeping their stories alive. And, and that's a very personal experience for me, but it also connects me with millions of other people around the world, stretching to Cambodia, to Vietnam, to Japan, where the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki killed so many and left so many with the aftermath. And I guess I would extend that, that to all of us in the sense that um, there's there's so much, uh, uh, how do I want to put it, denial of, of um, horrific events that then m- makes them uh, harder to heal. Mm-hmm. That, that would be uh, something I'm aware of in, in what I do. Mm-hmm. And also... Um, more repeatable? Well, it's really complicated to sort through both our individual responses to trauma, violence, even even something as relatively small as just upheaval in one's life, um, a dramatic change of situation. But so even on the individual level, we don't always have the tools to process that. But when you add a collective layer and then you add an ancestral layer to that, the challenges are so compounded. My belief is really that even if we don't directly experience these, these great acts of suffering or these events that, that feel bigger than life, we actually do share the residue. And I'm not just now talking about this DNA issue, but I'm also just talking about relationally, communally, that, that in this culture, for example, in the United States, we are still collectively grappling with the unresolved legacy of slavery, the unresolved legacy of Jim Crow and civil rights and all of the ways that we never fully addressed our culpability in the dehumanization of an entire race in this country. And, and all the ways that is playing out right now daily is all the evidence I need to convince me that we still have a lot of work to do and denial is not serving us. Yes, and of course, in this country, the other the other uh, injury that I'm so deeply aware of is the um, genocide of the Native American people, mm-hmm. the Native exactly. people here, uh, yeah. who um, I'm I'm close to uh, a lot of members of that community, and so I feel that very viscerally, very personally, even though it's not my story. Which and yeah, it's not my story either, but but because I think of my connection to my Jewish heritage as a kind of tribal connection, I've always felt a deep sense of affinity with Native American people and this sense that tribal relationships to place were so disrupted. Just that, not to mention, you know, the human cost, but just the, the sense of place itself, all the destruction there. One thing that really stood out in the book to me is is kind of a, I guess I'd call it a creative tension between um, a very well-expressed and beautiful book, 
that you've written. And um, something you said on and off through the book, which is that we can't, we can't ever really capture the story. We can't ever really describe. Mm-hmm. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that, because, of course, uh, I find that, you know, when I'm working with clients or even on this show, that even when I'm talking about my own traumas, you know, much on a much smaller scale, like the loss of my wife, I can I can write pieces about it, but I can't ever take anyone there in the way that I experience it inside myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm-hmm. that's the association I made uh, when you were when you were writing in that way. But I wondered if you could talk more about that. Well, you'll notice that the book begins with a section that comes prior to the introduction, prior to the table of contents, everything. And it's really, um, it's something I call the alphabet of inadequate language. And that several pages worth of, of vocabulary came pouring out of me one day when I really found myself kind of in the deepest pit of my struggle to speak about things that really essentially are unspeakable. And in fact, for a long time, the subtitle of the book was going to be speaking about the unspeakable, because to me, that is so paradoxically at the core of trying to find words for experiences that are that are really beyond language and beyond our ability to narrate or describe or explain. And yet, we live in the world with language. It's our tool. It's, it's, it's the thing we rely on to communicate with. And so that, I think it's beautiful for you to s- describe it as creative tension. It's, it's an inner experience I have as a writer with this material. But I think it's also kind of fundamentally human that we have to rely on these tools even though they fall short so often. So in the case of this book, you know, when I think about words we've we've become so familiar with almost to the point where they seem bizarrely to have lost their meaning um, when when somebody can just casually reference gas chamber or Auschwitz or um, extermination camp what mm-hmm. you know that to me those words when you really let them resonate when you really think about how much they're being asked to represent, it's overwhelming. And so starting the book in that way was my, my kind of invitation to the reader to say, bear in mind the, the fragility of words and, and the way that they really can only do so much. And I know that in the world of of trauma study now and memory study and, and therapeutic approaches to, ther- to trauma, um, there is this recognition that, that narrative isn't always the way, you know, that telling stories isn't always the pathway toward healing. And some of that healing takes place beneath language, beyond language. It's in our bodies. It's in our spiritual practice. And so, you know, I'm a writer. I use words, but I also yes. wanted to acknowledge their limits. 
Or maybe the variety. Uh, I, I interviewed a woman named uh, Belworth Napperstuck mm. uh, a bit ago, who I, is I basically um, basically works with imagery, mm-hmm. um, visualization. Mm-hmm. She doesn't think trauma can be um, addressed without um, revisualizing. I guess we'd say visualizing and revisualizing. I would not go that far. I think. We all have our different ways, actually, but uh, yeah. I think I think it is um, an interesting notion. Yeah, somehow- again, I, you know, I don't in any way position myself as an authority on the subject of of how to heal trauma. But given my, you know, the the research that I did and all the different people that I spoke with, I do lean in the direction of of believing that. Um, that there are many, many different ways and that it, it's, it's cultural, it's individual, it's collective, it's a process for sure. And, um, and even for, the, for an individual person, the same methods might not work more than once for different events, different episodes, different times in their lives. So sure. I'm a big believer in, you know, in finding what works for you, even if it's blending modalities or experimenting with one and, and trying another later. I know that, you know, it's also really valuable to look across a culture and see what are, what are you know, you spoke about Native people. What are, what are Indigenous people doing that, that they've been doing for centuries that we've lost track of? What can we learn from from some methods that that we maybe have abandoned because we thought we were developing past those, or that you know we had superior pharmacology, you know? <laughs> for sure, yeah. for sure. You know, before uh, we're we're coming close to the end of our first uh, segment here, and I'd love for people to just hear a little a little bit of the voice of your book because I it's very powerful. And if you wouldn't mind just sharing some from the introduction, I think that would be wonderful. Thank you for that opportunity. So I'm just going to read a few um, a few selected paragraphs from the um, the chapter in the book that's called Introduction. It's an understatement to call entangled the relationship between memory and storytelling, trauma and healing. In the Western world, we generally believe that narratives can help us feel less alone in our grief or suffering, that finding a way to share the experience can diminish its power to damage and fester. But how soon and how late? Within the landscape of a multi-stranded tether between generations, This book began as my obsessive questioning about how we will remember what happened to an entire generation once they are no longer here to participate in the conversation. While the pathways of voluntary and involuntary remembrance can sometimes converge, they can also diverge. Following what some have called the most violent and tumultuous century in human history, We are poised on a critical edge, a time in which those who endured these atrocities are dying, their voices disappearing. It's a dilemma being pondered by artists and designers of memorials, too, by educators and historians and scholars. 
I suspect that the current uptick in memoirs by Holocaust survivors is just one example of the sense of urgency felt among first-hand witnesses, not unlike the increased public visibility of aging atom bomb survivors who are determined to share their personal testimony in order to warn the world against nuclear proliferation and the unacceptable barbarity of nuclear war. How does atrocity defy memory and simultaneously demand to be remembered? How do we collectively mark it and honor it while addressing its inevitably convoluted aftermath? As we examine the inheritance of trauma within the mosaic of human history, is it ever possible to move beyond it? You know, because of the uh, accident of timing of talking about um, the Native American uh, experience and then hearing that, I was thinking in oral traditions, um, the memory is maintained through the oral tradition. Mm-hmm. People do speak the generations going forward. We And we have, in a way... Uh, we we've found a way to preserve words, but we don't we don't tell the story as our own. Maybe, um, and I think in your book, um, I I felt this affinity between your story and your father's. That mm-hmm. his his story and and your mother's as well is also yours in some different way. Mm-hmm. Does that yeah. feel true to you? Yeah, I mean, I've I've most of my life really referred to it whether privately or in talking with other people, I, I refer to it as a loved obligation, that mm. it, it really does feel like something I've been given to do. And, and rather than, than think of it as burdensome, I think of it as, how can I find meaning in this? How can I accept it as part of the fabric of who I am in the world? And, and how does that become kind of a mission for me in order to to be of service and to, and to provide some form of transformation of that. And I think that in the way that, that it's, it's also for me really just naming what's true, you know, that, that I believe we do carry the stories of our parents and others. And we can pretend that's not true or we can, we can focus on other things. But in my case, it has just, it has become a focal point. And well, I also, it, sorry, go ahead. I hate to interrupt, but we have we have to take a break. But when yeah. we come back, I want to uh, talk some about how that's woven through your life because I'm imagining that your viewpoint on that has changed over your lifetime, and mm-hmm. uh, I'd really I'd really like to hear that story of yours. Great. Um, so we'll be ba- be back in a couple minutes, and listeners, you can go to the Good Grief page at Voice America to reach out to me, and to find Elizabeth Rossner, you can go to elizabethrossner.com. Be back soon. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk 
with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Elizabeth Rossner about her new book, Survivor Cafe. And Elizabeth, before the break, you were talking in such a moving way about feeling, um, I, I guess the paraphrase that came to my head is a kind of a sacred obligation mm-hmm. to keep these experiences and stories alive and... and um, keep your parents' stories in particular uh, in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, you know, I know there are people who feel differently about their, their legacy, and, and I honor that, too. I'm, I'm certainly not proposing that everybody should feel the way I do about their family stories. I'm, I'm certainly not identical to the way my siblings carry the family story, for example, but I'm also really fascinated by, for example, the, what's happening in Japan right now, that it's not just literal descendants of the survivors of the atom bombs in, in Hiroshima and Nagasaki who are preserving these stories, but there, there are people who are taking on the role of a designated transmitter of memory, and they are quite literally memorizing the testimonies of the survivors so that they can carry those stories almost as if they belong in their bodies. Mm. And some of them are telling those stories in the first person as if really speaking in the voice of the survivor. And I find that incredibly poignant um, that, that this is a way of saying this story has to be intimate and personal and it cannot be left to the abstraction of history. Oh, that's that touches me a lot. I was part of a project a couple of years ago um, 
It was a piece of music written in honor of the 50th anniversary of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And then the events had people who had lived through that and other generations as part of them. And it, it got in deep yeah, <laughs> in the course yeah. of those of those performances. And um, I did I, f- I felt both what you're talking about, keeping those stories alive and also a futuristic mission of how do we get rid of nuclear weapons? Exactly. That there was a real sense of strong um, drive to tell people how it was in the service of that, too. Exactly. Yeah, my research really revealed that to me, that after a period of some silence, and that, you know, not to overgeneralize, but in the Japanese culture, there is this kind of stoicism about suffering, and you just, you move on, you know, you don't linger in it, you don't dwell upon it, Um, but that after a certain number of years had gone by, there was this realization that if they didn't speak about what had happened, if they didn't depict fully the atrocity and the nightmare of what they endured and what they witnessed, the world might forget just how Mm -hmm. horrific nuclear weapons are. And, of course, the strength of the weapons we have now is just, it's beyond astronomical, the distance we've traveled from then till now. And, And I think they feel such a sense of urgency that the world is already forgetting I think that has to be true. Uh, it so happens in the news, North Korea and U.S. Mm-hmm. The, the I don't know if I want to call it a conversation, but whatever is happening yeah. um, to me is based on a lack of awareness of that. Yeah, uh, I mean, even I, <laughs> for anyone to even consider that there is such a thing as a limited nuclear war, as if that somehow makes it acceptable or imaginable. And, you know, during the Reagan administration, when Reagan and Gorbachev came so close to completely disarming, there was this moment of of profound realization that, you know, all this insanity that had been building and building even beyond Hiroshima and Nagasaki, maybe we were finally all going to come to our senses. And then that collapsed, right? Mm -hmm. And, And so... To have an administration now, you know, tossing threats around so casually, uh, you know, like some playground bully when when the stakes are just impossibly high, it, it, it's so unacceptable. I can only imagine what people who survived Hiroshima and Nagasaki must be experiencing right now. Well, and of course, Japan is in, in uh, you know... <laughs> experiencing some direct uh you know missiles flying over their country mm-hmm. and right. and such so that must be right. so post traumatic for a lot of people yeah i mean this is you know they are literally neighbors with with a country that that possesses the power to um reenact what happened to them but in the worst worst way so yeah yeah i so mean when this you is- think of it Go ahead, go ahead, sorry. Well, uh, I was thinking this is sort of the, um, I was thinking as I read your book, because your your life story is so woven into it, your your relationship to um, this uh, is, is very well 
uh, explored, mm. I guess I would say. Mm. And um, I'm thinking that at different points in your life, that has been clear to you in different ways. You you mentioned several times that you can't identify a moment where you kind of heard what had happened or, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. that it was just like the air you br- breathed. Right. Um, and I, I just wondered how that developed for you. You know, how did you come to be where you are mm-hmm. through a lifetime of experience? Well, the the structure of the book was really important to me in, in helping to reflect to readers the way that time is so nonlinear when it comes to this sort of thing, when it comes to the the memory of one's own trauma or the memory of hearing about someone else's trauma even, that that the earliest personal stories in the book are are the most recent ones around the most recent trip to Germany I made with my father in 2015, but under that are the layers, the, the kind of excavation almost of layers of the two previous trips I took with him all the way back to 1983 when I was 23 and he was 53, and then in 1995 um, for the 50th anniversary of liberation when I was, um, I was 35 and he was now 65, and then recognizing that each trip like memory, sort of, you know, replaced and rewrote the next trip, but they were all there somehow simultaneously, too. And the most recent trip, he was in his 80s, I was in my 50s, close to the age he had been when we first went together. So, and then my nephew, who was in his 20s, represented this next generation. So, Mm. the idea is really to show that, you know, time is this woven thing, and memory is a woven thing, and family stories are woven like that. We we don't always know the full history of the past until we come back to it again and again. And yeah, our relationship to that history changes all the time. There were there were many times in my life when I thought, okay, I'm done with this now. I've looked at it long enough. I've studied it. I've thought about it. I've written about it. I've done therapy. You know, I think I can just, you know, let it, let it settle into some kind of more, I don't know, boxed up part of me. Not repressed, but just to set it Mm -hmm. aside. I've done that work. And yet every time I would work on a new book or meet someone who has a shared history or meet someone who had a parallel history, like someone who was related to the Armenian genocide by ancestry, I would realize, no, this didn't go away inside me. I just have to keep circling back to it whenever it shows up. Well, that's, that really stands out because it's kind of the way I think about grief as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That, it's, that it's not something we do and then we're done with it. That it's, an, it's a, uh, something that, that happens that we over time integrate, but... Uh, I, I would never say any big grief I've had is done. Yeah. It's just different. Yeah. I know. <laughs> uh, I think that's really wise and, and really honest, you know, rather than having this expectation that you're on some sort of linear goal-oriented pathway and that you're really hoping to just finally achieve that place and then never look back. 
I, I don't think it's forward, backward, up, down. I, you know, it, it's we often talk about spirals or other images that seem more apt for this sort of thing. It's, you revisit, you're never in the same place you were the first time, but there's an echo, there's some familiarity accompanied by a new insight or a new layer of feeling. And I think grief is absolutely like that for me and, and for everyone I know who's really experienced it fully. It changes, it moves, but um, it, doesn't, it doesn't end. And I... I can't, it's it's not divisible from who we are, is it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, um, I say that and I don't want people to think, oh no, that's bad news. Like, I, to me, right. that's actually, I, I actually think all of these, all of these intense layers of feeling and experience and inquiry really make us who we are. And, you know, of course I can't imagine who I would be if I were born into a different family with a different story, but I, I'm grateful in, in, in a kind of paradoxical way. I'm grateful for how all of this, all of this subject matter, all of this suffering and sorrow and loss and grief and trauma really does help keep me connected to the world and, to, and mm. empathetic toward the suffering of others. And, and that I hope it makes me really a fuller and more present human being. You know what, what's coming to my mind at the moment is something we we were uh, talking about a little bit on the break, which is that I'm about to do this uh, trip through the South, and one of uh, with my choir. One of the things we're going to be doing is is walking the bridge in Selma that King walked, mm-hmm. and my dad did that walk with King. Mm-hmm. He was a civil rights worker. And um, there's tr- there's there's actually difficulty connected with that. He was gone a lot. Uh, we lived in the West Coast then. Um, you know, mm-hmm. there was. I think my parents were in a lot of fear. There were um, mm-hmm. certainly people not coming back. Right. And um, every time I think about doing that, going and walking that bridge with mm-hmm. what's going to be about 300 people at mm-hmm. least. Mm. Um, I start crying every yeah. single time, and it's not sadness. It's I feel moved by it. Yeah. Oh, I uh, got chills the minute you said it. I mean, it, it, you know, it's such a shared sense of um, not just empathy in an emotional way. I, I literally feel a physical sense of of empathy for you, and and what that will mean, and what it already means in anticipation of it. Because really, our bodies don't lie. Our, our bodies tell us again and again what, what speaks the loudest, what is the hardest, what is the most important. And I think it's, I think it's stunning and, and, and admirable and beautiful that you're willing to put your body in that place and to let yourself cry. I mean, th- it, those are those are r- really cleansing tears. And um, again, not to simplify anything and not to reduce it to a single gesture or a method that's going to solve everything. But my guess is you're going to feel much more fully integrated with that story once you've walked that bridge. I, I agree completely with that. And that, that refers to also the way in which 
people I work with that have experienced trauma, finding ways to to um, respond to that and and uh, let it be part of their lives and uh, tell the stories, even if they're imperfect and all that. Um, that's how we come alive in it, I think. Yeah. Do, do you think so? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, again, going back to the stories of visiting Germany with my father, the first story, really, I mean, earliest in time, is the one where I was in Europe traveling on a train, and I didn't go to Germany. My train stopped at the station in the town where my father had been born, and I was so petrified and so frozen that I couldn't even imagine stepping off the train. And it was only after I came home from that trip, came back to California where I was living, that I called my father and started asking him if he would go there with me. So the, so the seed for that very first journey with him was planted in the moment where I was too frightened to go. Mm. Oh, that's, that's, I want to hear a lot more about how he came to say yes to that mm. because mm. I've known a lot of uh, people who are also generation two, as you call mm-hmm. um, the the children of Holocaust survivors, and many of their parents did not want to talk about it or do anything mm-hmm. about it at all. Right. So after the after the break, I'd really like to uh, hear more about how you Im- how you think or know. Maybe mm-hmm. he told you, or you might just have ideas how he got the courage to make that journey. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's also important here is the courage it takes to mm-hmm. to face up to it and yeah. um, share it. Listeners, you can go to my website, weatherandgrief.com or the Good Grief host page to find me. And to find Elizabeth Rossner and her wonderful book, go to elizabethrossner.com. Back after the break. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. 
Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. I'm here talking with Elizabeth Rossner about her book, Survivor Cafe. And Elizabeth, um, before the break, we were talking about the um, experience of you being on a train that stopped in Germany and being too scared to get off. And um, then asking your dad to go with you, which I found to be, when I read it in the book and now hearing it again, um, really somewhat remarkable yeah um that that was your impulse Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) and and also i was i was um sort of imagining this is completely impossible to do but imagining what it might have been like for your father to receive that call uh, will you well, go with me? <laughs> I have to tell you, it was many calls. <laughs> it wasn't just one. Um, oh, that's I mean, good. I, I like I like expanding that into yeah. It was a process. <laughs> oh, it was absolutely a process, and and it was it was a, a process that I didn't even fully understand until much later. I have to say, I was, you know, I was going with a kind of intuition or a kind of impulse that I had. Um, that was, you know, my realization later after the trip had ended that this is what I wanted to do and I needed his help. And what would happen is um, he would he would kind of steer the conversation away. And then at one point he finally said, I don't know how many times I had brought it up, this is all by phone, he said these unforgettable words, can we talk about something else? And I was floored. I had no idea. It was the first time he had ever said to me so overtly, I need to shut this down. I do not want to discuss this. And I was in therapy at the time, and my therapist said to me, you can't have every single conversation with your father be bringing up this painful topic for him. And I realized, you know, I was like his torturer, totally unintentionally, of course. So I dropped it. I really fully dropped it. And then a few months later, he said to me, if we're going to go to Germany, we better start making plans. And, and what I had done, consciously and unconsciously, was I just, I let it go and I turned it over to him. I realized that I couldn't make this thing happen. He had to be willing, and he had to know he could do it. And then, as I also say in the book, the night before the trip, he tried to cancel it. (laughs) (laughs) We made all our plans. I, you know, I flew back. Used to be with him because we were going to leave from there. And he said, um, again, unforgettably, there was a crisis at work, and he couldn't leave. And I and I was I was young. I was only in my early twenties, but I really at that point understood that what he was really saying was he couldn't do it. He was scared. It was too terrifying or uncomfortable or a hundred other things. And I just had to wait and the next day we really did go. He just I think he just needed to say that and to, maybe even to see my reaction, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if he even knew what was going on for him emotionally. Right. Or maybe, I I don't know, what comes to my mind is when you're healing 
uh, I'm not even sure how I feel about that word entirely. Sometimes I like integrating better, but Mm -hmm. um, when you're trying to do that work, you can't repeat the original injury. So (laughs) maybe he needed to feel he had freedom. Yeah. That's a really good observation and insight. I, I think so many of those things are true for him. And what ended up happening on the trip itself was also so symbolic and actual. He passed a kidney stone while we were in Germany together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. His, his body was actively enduring something excruciating. And yet, because my father is who he is, he's got this unbelievable level of resiliency and perseverance, which, you know, I've inherited some fraction of. Um, he pushed on, he kept on going, and by the very, very end of our visit, literally when we were standing on the site of the concentration camp, he said, um, now I need to come back again with the rest of the family. Mm-hmm. I had to leave a moment of silence there because that's such a remarkable result. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure there were so many painful things about, um, uh, you know, even in my family, and we were so completely indirectly affected um, by, uh, my dad was friends with people who'd been through the Holocaust, so I learned about it young and, and mm-hmm. had that horror, but it's nothing, you know. Mm-hmm. And even in our house, um, uh, there was a sort of s- um, sense of Germany as such a terrible country and not wanting to hear people speak German, not, you know. <laughs> right. right. Uh, just even in, even in our family. For, so for him to go back there... Yeah. Yeah, uh, and then have his response be, uh, "We we need to all come together." That's very remarkable to me. Yeah, he's a remarkable man, and and I have to say too that that the subsequent trips where we were encountering not only other survivors but also um, soldiers, men um, men who had been part of Patton's Third Army that liberated the camp. Um, that was incredibly powerful for me, too, because I had done some interviews of soldiers who told me stories that they never told their families because they had been so traumatized by what they witnessed. You know, for a young, you know, a young GI who thought the war had just been won and he was about to go home, and then he walks through the gates of this nightmare. Um, So I was hearing the level of trauma that extended into American families that, that weren't the victims of the war, but were victimized in a way by, by being witnesses. And their mm. families were carrying that residue. And that's why in the book I also talk about what it's like you know, when soldiers come home and, and how much we need to learn about how to help soldiers come home from war. Oh, absolutely. I I agree with that because that's sort of um, an atrocity by definition to to witness that kind of uh, and sometimes be um, personally hurt and uh, 
you know, coming back with that is so damaging, well, potentially. And again, it's, yeah, it's so complex in terms of both the physical embodied injury and then all the other types of injuries that go with that or that sometimes aren't visible at all. I learned this phrase, moral injury, while I was working on the book, and I think it's a relatively recent phrase that mm-hmm. that trauma specialists have come up with to describe what vets from um, the Middle East, Iraq, and Afghanistan, and and so on. These these soldiers who haven't participated necessarily participated directly in an atrocity. But by witnessing the atrocity, they've experienced a feeling that they should have done something to present it, prevent it or intervene in some way. And that's the wound they carry, is that they didn't do more to stop something horrible from happening. And, you know, maybe that's like as old as war itself. I think it's just we're finding new ways of talking about that. Well, yes, and and again, if um, even on the level of simple grief, there's usually some of that. What could I have done differently? How could I have made this different? So, to to have it be so such a damaging and uh, you know, not um, not regular is the word that yeah. you know, yeah. uh, even even bigger. Well, for I sure. Say, yeah, I say in the book that, you know, and this isn't an original thought of mine, I'm sure I'm quoting all sorts of people when I say this, that we know how to we know how to turn men and now women too into warriors, but we have a lot to learn about how to how to bring them back into so called ordinary life when being a warrior is no longer appropriate or relevant and and we we really don't quite know how to do that well that's very true um i have been thinking quite a bit about that lately so it's Mm -hmm. interesting to have it come up and the other thing i want to just touch on we only have a few minutes left but i want to touch on this the number of times you talk about memorials to mm-hmm. ways of of marking place, mm-hmm. and what came to my mind as I was as I was reading is that um, when we mark the place, we change the place. You know, all these times you vid- visited, the place you visited was completely altered. Right, um, and that just really, you know, if we put. Uh, is it Brian Stevenson who wants yeah. to put a plaque yeah. at every um, place where where uh, a bl- a black man or woman was lynched, yeah. which I think is really a good. Uh, 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 I mean that that seems so meaningful to me. Yeah. And at the same time, you know, we're 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 kind of um, our skill in doing those things also means we lose some. Uh, some of the meat, even I went to uh, the Twin Towers exhibit mm-hmm. at one point, and it wasn't finished, and now I'm thinking, when it's finished, it's yet again different from what it was originally, you know. Right, right. Well, it's, again, this story of, um, you know, how how we try and track the past inside the present and and how... We try and fail and try again in all these different languages, sometimes with words, sometimes with sculpture, sometimes with empty space. 
But I think, you know, again, in a lot of other cultures, maybe including including our own, but certainly in Native American culture, as I understand it, there is this recognition that that where violence has occurred, the place has already been marked, that, that even if so-called nothing is there, no memorial, no plaque, no sign, the place itself carries that memory. And so I think what people like Brian Stevenson are trying to do is, is in some ways formalize the acknowledgement of what that place carries and to say, you know, not only can you not forget what happened here, you kind of have to be forced to remember. You might be tempted to want to look away. You might be tempted to want to build a park here and have a picnic here instead. But what you really need to do is is stand with with more solemnity than that and really acknowledge that something terrible happened here. And I know that people who go to the 9-11 memorial it seems to me that there's a unanimous feeling that, yes, we absolutely had to have something there to honor yes. the dead and to honor what happened. And then there was all sorts of disagreement about just what that should look like and feel like and be. And of course. <laughs> yeah. Of I mean, course. And that debate continues even after the structure's completed. It's just that, um, you know, we, we're complicated, we humans. We, want, we are. We want to remember and, and we're confused about how that's a great place to leave it we're complicated as humans <laughs> thanks so much for being with me today and uh, I could spend many more hours talking about this but we'll have wow. to call it a day for now thanks for a beautifully complicated conversation <laughs> thank you too next week I'll have Edgar Behrens Edgar's a filmmaker who made the film Prison Terminal the last days of Private Jack Hall about the hospice program staffed by inmates at the Iowa State Penitentiary. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.